0: Hi, my name is Michael Alden. I'm a graduate research assistant here at Clemson University, working on cannabis research.
1: We must work untiringly so that our children are obliged obliged to learn, because it is only through knowledge that we can safely protect. about cannabis is dedicated to providing reliable cannabis science education to anyone curious enough to learn to get access to free courses and other educational resources visit learn.cacpodcast.com and become a curious about cannabis member for free The Curious About Cannabis book provides an incredible crash course in cannabis science through over 500 pages of content filled with photos, activities, science experiments, games, and more to help guide you through your personalized cannabis education journey. This book has become a trusted textbook in colleges and universities across North America and is absolutely perfect for serious learners as well as cannabis educators, tenders, clinicians, patients, and caregivers. And special thanks to the many individuals, companies, and organizations that have helped Curious About Cannabis meet our mission of becoming the number one trusted source of cannabis science education on the planet. This includes organizations like Credo Science with Ethan Russo, The Conigma, Treadwell Farms, The Spellman Report with Kevin Spellman, The Workshop, Green Earth Medicinals, CBD National, Magnolia Botanicals, and more. Visit cacpodcast.com slash sponsors to learn about our sponsors and go show them some love for helping us spread cannabis science education far and wide to anyone curious enough to learn. If you like Curious About Cannabis, consider checking out some of these other learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. ephemeral breathtaking yet fierce and unyielding grounding yet transcendent it's a curious thing let's explore it together Isn't Life Curious? available at isn'tlifecurious.com or
0: wherever you experience podcasts.
1: And now, back to the show. Hey everybody, this is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Today we're going to be talking all about the, how plants grow, how cannabis plants grow. And we're here with Michael Alden, who's a researcher at Clemson University and has been studying all about the different variables that impact cannabis plant growth. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm stoked to uh, share some of your research you've been getting into for the past few years.
0: Thanks so much for having me. This is uh, very exciting to be here, and uh, always happy to talk about all the research we uh, we have going on.
1: Yeah. So let's um, before we get into the the details, let's talk a little bit about. Um, some of the work that Clemson's been doing and I know that you're connected with um, CRC who I introduced in our episode with um, Allison Justice so if you wouldn't mind kind of paint us a little bit of a picture of how you um, kind of got involved with studying the cannabis plant and um, kind of how that's all developed and then we'll start talking about what you've been learning what you've actually found
0: Sure. Yeah. So uh, getting involved with cannabis research was a little, uh, it's kind of funny. Um, so I started graduate school in 2018, doing a master's on poinsettia flowering responses. Uh, when I was at University of Florida doing my undergrad, I got involved with the Environmental Horticulture Club. And with that club, that's a, you know, we grow a large poinsettia crop, we sell it to the public, we use that money to go on an international trip. So I was the head grower for that. And that was really exciting. And, you know, getting to work on growing a greenhouse crop. I had never worked in a greenhouse or done anything like that. So poinsettia, I just kind of fell backwards into that by joining a club, you know, right time, right place. Um, then, you know, I had a very good friend in, um, in my undergrad program, who was a master's student, uh, Paul Fisher's graduate student at the time. He, you know, recommended that I shouldn't, you know, start looking into graduate school. And I had no idea even what that was. Um, and so Paul Fisher was, uh, very good friends and they were lab mates with Jim Faust. Uh, Jim Faust has, you know, written the industry standard manual on growing poinsettias. And I was like, well, okay, yeah, let me at least reach out to him. And so, you know, Jim called me pretty quickly and said, Hey, you know, let me, uh, fly you up here and let's, you know, let's talk in person and stuff like that. So fast forward, you know, I started as a graduate student, um, doing the flowering responses with poinsettias. Uh, looking at temperature and photoperiod effects, uh, heat delay is a big problem with poinsettias, being that the high temperatures will delay flowering in poinsettias, push the harvest time or the the, you know, the maturity time beyond the shipping window, which then causes growers to end up with poinsettias that mature too late and can't be sold. So it's a devastating, uh, I guess, economic loss when heat delay happens. So you know, as we're approaching the end of my master's, because master's about two two and a half years. Um, that's about the farm bill. Well, farm bill was passed 2018. But I don't think Clemson started picking up steam with hemp until about 2020. And so, uh, Jim asked me, uh, you know, a couple times he said, you know, do you want to stay for a PhD? And I was like, nah, you know, I think I'm just gonna get out to the industry and start making some money and start, you know, trying to, you know, uh, get some professional experience. And so each time I told Jim, no, he came back with another reason to counterpoint what I had told you know, the reasons why I said no. (laughs) And, you know, it, you know, he pointed this out, he's like, you know, you're not gonna have an opportunity to do hemp research, just, you know, being able to do this right as you're you know, in your mid, mid to late 20s. And, you know, this is right here for you. We have, you know, great facilities, all these things. And finally, after another, you know, enough arm twisting, I was like, all right, all right, all right, fine. I wanted to get into cannabis anyway. And I was like, well, if I can get a doctorate for just, you know, ha- having a lot of leeway to learn about the crop in the process, then sure, that made sense. Um, so it, as part of that, yeah. uh, finishing out my master's and starting the PhD project. There's a lot of going from the ground up, trying to learn about this crop.
1: That's fascinating. That's really cool. And, um, well, bravo to your, your mentor for really, you know, pushing you to reconsider. Um, cause it is a really unique opportunity, especially in the South, um, to be able to yeah. study cannabis. I've worked with, um, university of Georgia and the university of Mississippi, some, Um, But there's still a lot of uh, lag in universities actually stepping up and letting um, students get hands-on research experience um, for a number of reasons, you know, concerns about funding and all sorts of other things. Um, So it's nice to see that Clemson has recognized the opportunity and is choosing to be one of these really, in my view, a more progressive university in the sense that they are... um, you know, just kind of taking it head on and saying, "Look, we've already been studying all of these other crops. Um, cannabis is another one. Let's wrap it in. Let's start studying it, understanding it, and um, and see what comes of that." So, I just want to highlight for our listeners: it's actually a little unusual still, even today, for universities to allow this um, kind of work to happen, even under hemp, because there's still a lot of concerns. Um, so, that's a very special opportunity that you have
0: yeah absolutely um you know for as far as the flowering research is concerned i would say you know maybe i'm a little biased when i say this but between us and utah state and bruce bugby's lab you know i don't know too many other labs that are actually doing kind of very technical flowering studies because there are so many restrictions yeah. and so it's much easier for people to just stick with the propagation the vegetative stuff because they don't have to worry about the you know tight you know tight walk or the tight between marijuana and hemp by the definitions
1: right right yeah And so when you started to get your research going, um, one, um, what did that look like? Like how did you, were you considering issues from some of the poinsettia research and everything? Like you said, you were already looking at um, photo periods, flowering, all this sort of stuff. So did that already kind of um, guide you in what you wanted to kind of focus on or, or what did that process look like to get the first um study or two going and did you run into any hurdles or anything as you were kind of getting started
0: yeah so great question um the initially with the so the crc is what has funded my project and alex carver my lab mate um the you know nice. all the companies that have invested in the crc they have made this research possible so it's you know a huge plus to them um, getting started the biggest issue growers were having or the ones that they wanted to focus on first was propagation people you know there were lots of very good floriculture growers that were you know very well versed in uh floriculture propagation that were really struggling with uh, propagating cannabis and so that was kind of what a lot of growers were pitching in money for and wanted to have you know a solution to and we started playing with stock plants and propagation, um, especially with rooting hormone. Um, and very quickly, I, personally, I was more interested in the flowering side of things. And so I kind of had to, you know, me and Jim discuss kind of the future of what the you know, the PhD project would be. And I was like, you know, the cuttings and stock plants, like, it's cool, it's interesting, but I really want to get into flowering. And I was like, Okay, so that's where you know, bring in my lab mate, uh, Alex Carver, she's the one who ended up taking over the stock plant and propagation studies, which has been awesome, because we've had, you know, the best of both worlds going on simultaneously. Um, right. And then so with the flowering stuff, we got started with photoperiod, period. Um, and that was I guess kind of open-ended, especially at the start of my PhD project, it was kind of just like, all right, we want to focus on flowering and we want to focus on improving flowering, but we don't really know how to flower this crop. You know, we don't know anything. There's hardly anything published about photoperiod responses. So to us, Mm -hmm. you know, being flowering physiologists, we were like, okay, let's start with photoperiod. Let's start from the base. Let's get something that we can really put our heads around. Um, that's really what we got started with was trying to discern just how the plant responds to these varying photo periods. You know, the standard is twelve twelve for flowering, eighteen six for vegetative, but we really wanted to uh, press those boundaries and see what else can happen at different photo periods.
1: Yeah. And, um, right away, a couple of things I want to highlight that I think might be, um, less obvious to a lot of people even you know sort of cannabis connoisseurs you mentioned one that there's not a lot of published literature on photo periods and cannabis i think a lot of people take that for granted um and assume there is because yep. um we've we've adopted the the you know the 12 12 flowering um mantra um and repeated it for so long and I, I do know, like, uh, you know, I used to live in Oregon for about 10 years, knew a, a lot of really well-seasoned growers. have been doing it for decades and decades and decades. And, I, you know, I would hear from them um, sort of whispers of like, oh, yeah, no, the flowering period, like for this plant, you're going to need to do this or need to do that. Um, but never anywhere um, sort of substantial and public-facing did I see any sort of debate or discussion over, well, do unique cannabis plants have unique photoperiod requirements? Um, so, you know, just I think this is like a very easily overlooked um, issue. So let's, I guess, let's start to dive into that as you started to look at photoperiods. And this is going to lead into also a discussion about um, the sunset cultivar and a few other things. Um, but let's, let's talk about that. I mean, one, yes, there's, there's not much published literature on photo periods and cannabis. And what we have is a lot from, kind of borrowed from, um, you know, sort of like pop culture literature and, and anecdotes and that sort of thing. Um, so how did you um, put this photo period study together and um, what were um, some of the outcomes? It was super fascinating, at least, especially the discussions that were spawned afterwards
0: sure yeah so with you know i think you're absolutely right too there's uh there's a whole lot of anecdotes out there and very little data and so you know we wanted to fill that gap to you know let's because we we understand that there is a lot of knowledge out there among the legacy growers and the people have been growing cannabis for a while and everybody's got a different idea about the different you know the right way to do it but you know there's a lot of things i think are overlooked for sure um and so with the photoperiod experiments, we our first one, we did three different cultivars and we did 10, 12, 14, 16, and 18-hour photoperiods. The three varieties we flowered were came from Allison with the hemp mine. Um, and she identified those as having very different photoperiod responses. Now that's a fairly common thing in many floriculture crops. Like you can have one species, but there will be a, a range of um, cultivars that have you have to treat them a little differently. So with poinsettias, um, there's Advent, which Advent will initiate flowers in late August, early September, whereas Prestige Red will won't initiate flowers until late. Um, September, early October. And so, you know, you you can't necessarily just flower them at the same time, you have to, you know, schedule them slightly differently so that they reach the maturity or the harvest time at the same point, right. Um, and so we wanted to see with these three different varieties and these different photoperiod responses, you know, how they responded to these varying photoperiods. periods. Um, and so what we saw pretty quickly was that one sunset, which has been very interesting to work with. Um, Sunset wouldn't really flower at anything other than 10 hour photo period. So I told us right away, okay, here's one already exception to the rule. And there must be, you know, dozens of varieties out there that are just like this, that a shorter photo period than what the standard is would be beneficial or, you know, promote flowering much, much more. Um, OG would flower at um, 12 or 10 12 and very weakly at 14 you would see very long stigmas at all the nodes and slight reduction of the leaves so they wouldn't have the big palmate leaves anymore they'd be slightly reduced kind of skinnier um, but at 16 basically all vegetative and then tiger tiger would flower just fine from 10 up to 14 hour photo periods and then at 16 it had kind of that reduced leaf structure and the the long stigmas at all the nodes so very quickly we saw, wow, okay, so there's there's some interesting stuff going on here. And, you know, th- this has to be a phenomenon that's going on in the industry. And one that we know that, you know, there's a lot of growers that have to grow a certain way or that they're growing genetics because they're being made to grow them. Well, it's like, okay, we understand that there's a market demand for some varieties, but there's better ways to do it rather than just treating everything the same.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think just um, hearing that information is probably going to throw some people for a loop, um, you know, that... You know, on sort of one end of the spectrum and, and to clarify a few things, just in case anyone listening is, is confused when you're talking about the hours of photo periods, you're talking about how much light you gave them, 10 hours of light, 12 hours of light. Um,
0: yes. Yeah. 10 in, hours. Of, darkness, so for a 10 hour photo sure. period. Yeah. Right. So for the photo period, uh, that would be like a 10 hour photo period would be the lights are on for 10 hours of the day and then they're off for 14 hours after that.
1: Right. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So right away that you've got on, on one end of the spectrum, you've got sunset that seems to require this 10 hour photo period, very different than the sort of traditional 12 hours. So if people are growing that plant and they're running it on a 12 hour, um, photo period, like they'd sort of expect to do, um, based on common knowledge, they're going to have more trouble with that plant. Um, than if they were yeah. to adjust it to 10 hours. And then on the other hand, you've got This this uh, other end of the spectrum of plants that could do with, you know, up to uh, almost up to what you would consider normal for vegetation and still flower. Um, Yeah, so it's it's just a fascinating range.
0: With uh, with sunset too, what's interesting is that if you were a cannabis grower, and you were, you know, having new genetics, and you flowered your sunset, let's say at 12 hours, you would you know, by week eight, you'd probably look at it and go, oh, this is, you know, terrible genetics, and you just throw it out. But maybe that variety was actually a really good variety, you just needed to flower under a different photo period. And maybe what you're breeding for, you know, uh, disease resistance, or some of the other things you had, it. it's just you needed to shorten the photo period to make it viable.
1: Yeah, and it makes me also wonder about marketing claims related, uh, like associated with light companies and nutrient companies and all these things that say, look, this plant did better under this product or this product or this product. But when you don't know the requirements of the plants that were being grown to sort of demonstrate um, the utility of those things, whether it's lice, nutrients or whatever... Um, you really don't know how to make sense of any of that information because it's like, well, maybe the one plant that looks better was grown according to uh, parameters that are more suited for that plant versus another one that maybe didn't. Um, So it kind of brings into question a lot of things that circulate on social media, um, particularly um, different claims that are made. Um, It really introduces way more variables that people have to be thinking about.
0: yeah yeah, definitely a lot of a lot of anecdotes there's a lot of companies being able to sell products with very little data to back it up Uh, especially with fertilizer companies you know cannabis fertilizer is the only one that doesn't have to list their ingredients because they're considered trade secrets which i think is ridiculous Uh, but it's something that you know the industry is having to deal with or you know really growers are having to deal with which is really unfortunate
1: Let's talk about that for just a second, um, and then we'll get back to some of the other research that I want to get into. From your experience, having worked in um, a much broader industry beyond cannabis and studying, um, like you're saying, floriculture, uh, flowering plants, uh, plants grown for their flowers, trying to um, understand that. how What are the unique um, dynamics and industry issues that you see with cannabis that you don't see in other industries that you find interesting or, you know, just kind of strange juxtapositions? Because I imagine you notice a lot of things that um, that other people don't.
0: Yeah, um, there's definitely a number of challenges. Um, I, I would say one of the biggest differences that I've seen um, is the maybe the willingness to um, invest or be a part of research from cannabis growers. Um, mm. with floriculture, you know, this is a very mature industry. People have been you know growing flowering you know, poinsettias and mums and all sorts of things for decades. Um, and legally too. And so there's a a huge incentive to invest in research to optimize the production practices because with floriculture it is a race to the bottom. Of course, you know, every penny counts and you have to cut costs across the board. Um, And so learning how to optimize your production practices to cut those costs is so crucial uh, for a grower to survive in the market. Um, It's a little different with cannabis because there's a lot of capital being thrown around and growers are allowed to just kind of do what they want, uh, leaning on previous experience, without really having to think about the long term viability of the operation. Um, And so there's definitely some resistance, I think, uh, among growers about, you know, kind of incorporating research. And I think some of it also has to do with, you know, some of these things that we're doing research on, have been trade secrets. And then, you know, there's probably some growers that are upset by that they used to have the secret held very tightly, and it made them very valuable. And then there's, you know, people like me that are just doing the research. And just putting the data out there for free. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's there's a little bit of uh, uh, clashing there going on. And it, it shouldn't be that way. Um, you know, that's I think what the CRC is trying to accomplish by you know having these cannabis growers pitch in and then all be part of it, all have access to the data, all you know, communicate with each other. And it's kind of similar to what the Floriculture Research Alliance is, which is what my advisor, Jim Faust, him and his lab mates uh, from back—they're all under uh, Royal Hines at Michigan State. You know, they basically made their group and had these companies invest in um, their research programs, and then they put the data out for the the growers at a yearly conference, and you know, stayed in regular communication, made all the data available, and it also made the different companies talk to each other and share, which you know helped all of them. You know, there's plenty of plenty of territory for people to grow plants, plenty of markets out there. You know, just because you share one detail doesn't mean you're going out of business.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think some people, um, I've, I've run into the, the sort of trade secret issue in the cannabis industry as well, um, on, on multiple sides, both in the sort of cultivation side and the extraction side, and even the cannabis testing side, which was really funny because it's like, okay, we've been doing natural products testing for so long. Um, none of this is secret. Um, but, uh, it is, um, interesting. And I think sometimes people, um, assume that others can do more with their information than they actually can. Like they think that, oh no, if everyone knows this little piece of information, then I'm going to become, you know, get lost in the sea of producers or something. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for the experience that comes with that information too. Um, you know, that I, I don't know. I feel like people don't need to be as protective guarded and, um, and, and worried about that sort of thing. Um, and all of this information yeah. that's going to come out, you know, it's like as cannabis is, uh, as laws are, are loosened up more and more, there'll be more and more research and we're going to learn more and more and more, and it's going to become common knowledge. And that's, uh, everyone can, can benefit from that. Um, so I, I agree. I've seen the exact same yeah. thing and I, I do hope to see less of it. And that's why it's cool to see organizations like the CRC, um, you know, that are trying to. Um, not only engage in research, but in a way that is beneficial to the industry, to producers and trying to answer questions that really matter to a lot of people actually, you know, working in the industry. Um, that's something I've, that's always attracted me to the CRC is that the, the utility and practical nature of the research focus. Um, I think that's really important yeah. to help maybe bridge some of those gaps um, in the long run.
0: Yeah, For sure. Yeah, Yeah, there's, you know, I think the one of the best things I like about being with the CRC is that there's not a vested interest to get certain results. You know, these companies are pitching in money for to fund the research. And the data that we get is the data that we get, you know, we're not, you know, doing fertilizer analysis and then skewing our results based on that to sell a product. It's just, you know, if a company wants to test a fertilizer, it's like, okay, we'll do the fertilizer analysis, or, you know, we'll grow plants with it and compare it to something else. And whatever the data is, is what the data is.
1: That's right. That's right. Follow the data. Um, and coming back around to the data and to the research. So we've talked a little bit about the photo period thing, but there's a lot more that you've um, teased out over the the past couple of years other than just the um, interesting relationships between photo periods and um, unique varieties. One post I saw that you made um, on LinkedIn talked about um, investigating how to influence... Um, the inflorescence density without the use of plant growth regulators and trying to understand the the dynamics that kind of play into that, and I think that's something that a lot of people are very interested in um because at least up until around two thousand sixteen to two thousand eighteen or so that's when states started to uh, definitely two thousand sixteen um is when states started to think about regulating plant growth regulators um, I think Oregon. Um, started testing for a few of them just after 2016 or so, and they were one of the first states to start to do that. Um, So there has been a push for producers to either, if they're focused on plant growth regulators and were indoor growers that relied on those, they're either looking for new plant growth regulators that won't show up on testing, or they're trying to identify better methods of cultivation to try to get the same results um, without using those products so i think this is a really important um, subject for multiple reasons so um, do you mind talking a little bit about that Um, what are some of these dynamics that influence the density of the inflorescence of cannabis and what should um, growers be thinking about
0: Sure. Yeah. So this is one that's really exciting for me. Um, Just, you know, I just appreciate, I guess, the flowering physiology side of it. Um, And just thinking about, you know, kind of almost like in a 3d kind of real time, how are these flowers actually developing. And so with cannabis, you know, they develop inflorescences, which is essentially just a flower with branches. And so, you know, if you have a flower with branches, well, then, you know, the length of those branches is what's going to determine whether it's a compact flower or a very loose, large flower, right? And so that means when the actual inflorescence structure is initiating and um, elongating, that you want to, if you want dense flower buds, then you need to make sure that those internodes and those branches are very short. Most of the, yeah. the elongation of those branches within the inflorescence happens in the first two to three weeks of flowering, or at least when you move them to short days. Um, sometimes that can be a little different, um, depending on the variety. So like one, like sunset, sunset is essentially still vegetative that first week of flowering because it's so slow initiating, whereas another one like Jack or OG, they, they respond to the 12 hour photo period very quickly. And so targeting when you need to start, um, taking into account the length of the inflorescence that that are developing can be a little challenging, but that's where you need the cultivar evaluation for. So the main idea then with either photoperiod period um, or fertilizer restriction or some of these other techniques um, is making sure that you are giving an environment that is not conducive to long branches. Um, so with shorter photo periods, the, there's almost an evolutionary mechanism going on there where the plant is perceiving a much shorter day and therefore it's closer to winter. Mm. And it says, oh, no, you know, winter is coming, cold weather is coming, we're gonna die, we need to get a viable flower as fast as possible. So there is not really this elongation that goes on, there's not this prolonged flowering cycle, the flower is short and compact and it needs to get you know, something viable that can be pollinated, make seed and survive for the next year with fertilizer restriction, this is more so about, you know, maybe a more of a 12 hour photo period, not stressing the plant out that way, but instead having this more slower, normal kind of flowering growth, but not allowing the branches to grow by restricting nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, which really are those are the um, nutrients that are responsible for elongation of inner nodes. So removing those at the times when the, the plant would be stretching or elongating these branches, well, then that's how you would keep the, the flower buds compact. And so let me tie one more thing in there too. you know, it's one thing to control the, the length of the branches um, during the early parts of flowering, because that's where you're essentially establishing the architecture of the flower, the inflorescence. After that, once it's, you know, the architecture has been established after that, it's just filling, it, the, you know, each of those individual flowers are just going to swell and swell and get bigger and bigger, as long as they're not pollinated. So controlling the branch length early on is what, what really you need to be doing in order to maximize the density of your flowers, but also making sure that you have enough light in later flowering to get, you know, that really big swelling of the flowers.
1: Yeah, that's super cool. So there's this, yeah, critical window. And I love that you painted the picture of the, um, you know, sort of like evolutionary, um, um, kind of story behind why the plant reacts this way. Um, this, this critical window during the flip, that two to three window. Um, I I really like something that you just said, which is, this is why the cultivar, um, analysis is so important. So let's, let's speak about that a little bit. So let's say someone is a grower that's listening to this podcast right now, and they're starting to learn like, oh crap, there are a lot of nuances to all of these different, um, uh, cannabis plants. And it turns out I need to know a lot more than I thought I needed to know. What are some of the core traits of a cannabis plant that should be assessed that you think are most critical? Like, you know, we've talked about the responsiveness to photo period, how they respond to this transitionary period. Um, you know, essentially how likely are they to kind of bolt and you know, that sort of thing, stretch out um, all these, these different dynamics. Um, If a cultivator is now thinking, well, yeah, I want to get my potential cultivars um, assessed so that I can grow them the best way possible. um, First of all, what sort of things should they be measuring? and, And what does that kind of process practically look like?
0: Yeah, so great question. Um, I think there's a number of ways that you can approach it. Um, let's just say I had my my own research facility. And I was a business dedicated to cultivar evaluation, which that'd be something exciting for the future. But you know, something where all these different companies yeah. that pitch in their best genetics and have, you know, uh, an independent person, you know, try all their genetics and give them a bunch of data about it. Um, I think basically how I would do it is we pinch our plants at the start of short days, and then one week after. the reason for doing this is a couple of reasons. One being that it controls the height of the plant and helps keep the plants more compact, you can fit more plants per meter square that way. And we've seen over and over that more plants per meter square is higher yield way more than just growing, you know, one big plant or a couple of big plants. Um, But the other reason for doing that is that when you pinch after the start of short days, you're ensuring that Everything underneath where that pinch point is, um, you know, those new shoots that develop, those shoots only ever saw 12-hour photo periods or the flowering photo periods. Everything below that pinch was developed, you know, under long days, right? And so now you have the only thing that's growing is this, you know, this part of the plant that's under short days. So that is very quick and easy to, you know, distinguish the vegetative and the flowering parts of the plant. Um, and then, you know, I guess the other things that you could do would be measuring the, the length of the inflorescence. Let's just say you'd never pinch it again after that. Give it a standard fertilizer program and put it under 10, 11, 12 hour photo periods. You know, measure the length of it, just see how much more it's going to grow. And if it grows very tall, well, then maybe it should have one more pinch. So you can pinch at the start of short days, one week after and then maybe two to three weeks after which is what I'm currently doing with sunset with a new experiment Um, versus another variety like jack, where if we pinch it at the start of short days and one week after, you know, you're only going to get inflorescences this big, whether it's 10 11 or 12 hour photo periods. So in that regard, you know, that would tell you, okay, well, the if the heights not different, it's not really stretching. So we don't have to worry about that and we know that yield will increase linearly with um the the light deliver the daily light integral then we should always put this one under 12 hour photo period there wouldn't be a reason to do a 10 hour photo period so that would be kind of some areas to start with at least for photo period evaluations or cultivar evaluations
1: i think that's great yeah really great it just gives it gives cultivators some actionable things they can start to do to integrate how they evaluate the quality of plants. Um, before they scale them, I think that's really important because a lot of times they're just looking at, okay, someone grew this plant. How much THC did, or you know, depending on what market you're on, how much THC or how much CBD did it yield, or CBG, depending on situation. Um, and um, you know, they're missing a lot of things. I, I know a lot of cultivators. If they're growing from seed, they'll look at germination rates and feminization, and all that sort of stuff. Um, But I think these are all really important things that any cultivators listening should be thinking about integrating into their, you know, what's essentially your quality management system. How are you assessing quality of these um, um, plants that you're integrating into your grow? How do you um, kind of begin to quantify some of that so you can compare? And then what are, you know, sort of your own quality standards for plants that you want to be growing? And um, how, you know, like you're saying before, how do you maximize the efficiency, efficacy, Um, of the cultivation process to keep all of your costs low and everything like that. So I hope that, um, that, that, that gives some folks listening, um, some, some things to really think about and, uh, to start monitoring. Another thing I wanted to talk about that's kind of controversial and fun to address is flushing. So, um, I know you've done some experiments looking at, uh, um, at flushing. This is a very, um, hotly contested topic. Um, Especially if you get on social media and you start talking about it, um, a lot of people have quite um, sometimes even like aggressive opinions about how you should handle flushing. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. Um, explain some of your experiments um, around nutrient flushing and um, what some of your takeaways have been so far.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so flushing, first of all, is, is very Funny topic for sure. Um, One that I had no idea about uh, coming into cannabis research because it's not something that's done in any other crop, especially not poinsettias. Um, there is, you know, there's nutrient management in late flowering with poinsettias. Sometimes the poinsettias will stretch kind of badly and it's hard to get the growth regulators in the And Well, you can, you can inhibit bract expansion if you apply growth regulators too late, especially as a spray. So it's, sometimes the easier method is just to start cutting out the phosphorus in late flowering to make sure the plants stay nice and compact. But as far as actually flushing out the substrate and, you know, keeping the plants compact that way, that's, you know, unheard of. Um, so. When we got started with the flowering studies, especially the photo period, uh, you know, Allison came in for a visit one day and she was like, okay, well, you know, if you guys are enjoying flowering, you guys should take a look at flushing, like you guys should be the ones that, you know, make your stamp on this. And we were like, what, what is flushing? And so she started telling us about that. And we were like, okay, are you sure? And Jim wanted no part of it. He was like, that's ridiculous. We're not doing that. Why would, why would growers do that? That's so silly. And you know, after Allison and I kind of talked about it, you know, between her and I a few times after that. And I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do these couple small experiments. And then if I get good data, you know, maybe Jim will be excited about it and we can press forward with some bigger experiments. So yeah, I started two flushing experiments, uh, one in the winter of 2021 and then in in the summer, uh, which is what I posted a picture of yesterday, uh, where I tried um, peat-based media versus hydroponic. Um, And so I think, well, there's a few things that I guess untangle with this, but I think the idea of flushing really comes from this over-application of fertilizer. Um, And somebody left a a pretty interesting Mm -hmm. comment on one of the flushing photos I put up that the cannabis growers I don't think are at fault really for over fertilizing the crop. They've been told by fertilizer companies to apply this much fertilizer which is always excessive um, and they're just going off of what the company has told them to do. And so really the the villains of this I personally are the fertilizer companies. Um, They number one should know better and two you know looking at any other crop you know these nutrient requirements or demands that they're asserting for cannabis are just there wouldn't be from this planet, let me put it that way, you know, they're just so out, you know, absurdly high, uh, compared to any other crop. And there's other crops that are, you know, fairly big plants or you know, heavy producers like maize, or, uh, you know, I mean, just any other crop mm-hmm. field crops like that, um, that don't have anywhere near the requirements for that are alleged for cannabis. Um, and so with these, you know, astronomical fertilizer rates of course they're selling more fertilizer this way and then you're also able to sell these other products that to help remedy over fertilization like flushing agents <laughs> and I think this may have been a little yeah. bit of a conspiracy on the, you know, the industry side. And I think growers might have also just figured it out. They said, okay, I'm going to stick to this, this fertilizer regime because I don't really know what else to do here. But towards the end of the flowering, I'm noticing some of the symptoms that look like um, um, salt stress, you know, what would be very easy to yeah. find in another crop. Those are very you know, uh, studied symptoms. And so if you just cut out the fertilizer in those last couple of weeks, maybe that helps alleviate some of those symptoms that you might see in late flowering. The other part, too, is that the flowering or these fertilizers that are sold are very, very expensive. You know, fertilizer costs almost nothing to make if you make from scratch. If you just go down to your local farm store and buy these raw salts that you can make stock solutions with. I mean, you shouldn't be spending for for a floriculture producer, they spend one to two percent of their annual budget on fertilizer, whereas cannabis growers are spending, you know, over half of them are spending 10 to 29 percent of their budget, which is just insane. Um, and it's, it's just terrible and heartbreaking to know that, you know, because that, that is going to make run growers out of business, um, because they're leaning on these fertilizer companies to tell them what they should be feeding. And it's just it's just not accurate at all. So I think flushing has been kind of a growers attempt to figure out how to minimize the fertilizer they're applying and make a better quality product. Of course, this has led to all sorts of opinions to why you need to flush and you know what it does for the crop and what what the plant's requirements are and stuff like that. Um, my personal feeling from the various studies that we've done is that if you provide a fertilizer program that's in line with the plant's demand, there is no reason to flush. Uh, I don't think there's any real tangible benefit if the you know your fertilizer cost is that one to two percent range. You know the savings are going to be very negligible. Um, and there shouldn't ever be salt stress symptoms on your your flowers or your inflorescences, Um, and you should be able to just provide a nice continuous feed. Um, I could see limiting nitrogen in late flowering um, because, you know, overapplication of nitrogen is related to stretching um, as well as pest and disease susceptibility. So as far as flushing out nitrogen, I could see some benefits with that for sure, but that's something, of course, we need more data for to test.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is... It's super fascinating. I'm sure this is resonating with a lot of people that that hear this, because, um, like you said, I think it's something that a lot of people have figured out on their own, but they don't quite understand why or, or you know, sort of the details. Um, but, you know, the, just talking about the the fertilizer um, industry or market in in cannabis, it seems like a lot of these fertilizers they're sold as concentrated formulations, these concentrated liquids. And, um, a lot of times they're not really any different than things that, um, you would find anywhere else, but they have a unique label and sort of unique way of presenting them as if it's something different. And the cost is jacked up quite a bit. And um, so there's exactly. there's a lot of problems there. Also, soil companies are a problem, too. Don't get me started on those either. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think that this is why a lot of people, I've had a lot of friends, um, particularly from like the early 2010s and stuff when out in Oregon, when living soil and regenerative ag- agriculture was really um, getting much more prominent in the cannabis, um, like the, the uh, commercial cannabis scene out there. you know i had a lot of friends that were saying oh my gosh i switched to compost teas and now i'm saving tens of thousands of dollars every year from not having to buy fertilizer and you know looking back it's like oh that makes a lot of sense because now you're applying a fertilizer that's much more mild in con in relation to what you were using before um that provides you know um, broad nutrient requirements but not in as heavily concentrated you know and all that sort of thing um And, you know, they weren't needing to flush and and all these sort of things. And so it makes a lot of sense when you think about, well, yeah, you were probably dramatically over-fertilizing before. Um, And so you're you're seeing the trade-offs there when you switch to a, you know, compost teas and that sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, I'm just sure a lot of things are clicking in people's minds now. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, those fertilizers, they did grow the plants. Like, yeah, if you drown your plants in nutrients... um, they will grow. Um, they won't use a majority <laughs> of what's there. Um, but they'll grow and, um, and yeah, and then you, you've got to, you've got to try to flush all of that out. And for people that are not growers and maybe you're less aware, what are some of those symptoms of salt stress that you were, um, that you were mentioning, especially if anyone's like home growing or new to the cannabis cultivation, what are those signs that they should, um, watch out for?
0: So, <clears throat> sorry, the the biggest one uh, is that salt stress in the in the substrate is essentially preventing movement into the plant. And so you'll often see almost um, um, drought stress symptoms on the plant with too much salt in the substrate. They're often very similar with cannabis. The most often one is that you get these burnt tips al- along the inflorescence, mm-hmm. Um But sometimes these symptoms that look like nutrient stress can also be pathogen ones. And so the easiest way to distinguish that is seeing if it's uniform. Anything like salt stress or nutrient stress, they'll always cause uniform uh, deficiencies or symptoms within the plant. With pathogens, they usually attack very isolated areas and it's non-uniform. So that's always a good place to start trying to distinguish those two. Um, but wilting is definitely one where the plant is wet, but the, the media or the plant is wilting a little bit. That could be a couple of things, uh, can be salt stress cause not enough water is moving into the plant, uh, fast enough to keep it turgid. The other one could be, there be a root disease as well. That's actually eating the roots. Um, pythium is a big problem with poinsettias, which, you know, the media is wet. Um, <clears throat> but the pythium is actually eating the roots. And so, uh, the, the plant can't take up any water. Um, and so, yeah, that would be kind of the first ones to see with salt stress. And I think cannabis business times has put out a, um, a whole, a guide and breakdown on, uh, salinity with cannabis. I think, um, the guys at NC state have done a pretty good write up on that. So I would definitely recommend checking that out for anyone that's listening.
1: Nice, nice. Yeah. Good tip. Um, yeah, super fascinating. And I'm sure that, um, like with everything else, you know, a lot of this research, what it's showing is um, how unique some of the individual needs of these plants can be. And so I'm sure some of the, um, like if someone is wrestling with this problem of either flushing, trying to figure out their flushing schedule if they're needing to do that or trying to bring it down or whatever, I'm sure each plant is going to be slightly uh, different in terms of its ability to uptake nutrients and you know basic nutrient requirements obviously the media is gonna play a lot into that too um, if you're getting into soil rather than a soilless medium um, yep. so it's just even more even more to, to dive into and, and after the the flushing study that you did were you left with any um, questions are there more things that you're kind of wanting to investigate with that <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, One one of (laughs) the things that we really have enjoyed about flushing is that, uh, you know, some of the measurements are really easy to make as far as the the physiological ones or the the actual mass of the plant, you know, being able to distinguish whether uh, flushing is negatively affecting your inflorescence or your flower bud yield. That's very easy to do. Uh, we could do things like measure the length of the inflorescence and the number of flower buds and all that stuff. Um, but really, the more interesting stuff is happening inside of the flower. Uh, you know, how is this affecting the elemental content? How is this affecting the cannabinoids? And the one that we didn't get to do um, is basically analyzing the sugars within the the flowers. Um, so the long standing idea is that the flushing is also helping break down these accumulated starches into sucrose or other sugars. And that starch granules uh, cause a harsher smoke. And so if there's this idea that, you know, flushing is helping improve smoking quality, well, it's probably because really just the nitrogen source has been cut off, no more starch is being made and the starch is being mobilized into something that's uh, you know, more amenable to be smoked. Um, so if I could, you know, if I could really redo, um, not redo, but continue on with flushing studies, one would be, of course, doing more varieties. Um, we only did this with two varieties and the results are consistent. So I would expect that, you know, most varieties would respond that way, but there's a few different things that we could approach differently, especially catering to different varieties. Um, and two, doing a little bit more on the, the sugar analysis and stuff. Um, the one problem that we ran into is, okay, you know, all these things cost money, so which ones do we want to test? (laughs) For me and Jim, personally, we were really really interested in the cannabinoids and the elemental analysis that costs money. And so the sucrose and the sugar ones that kind got thrown to the wayside, especially because too, we can't smoke the flowers here. You know, we, all the flower here is disposed of, which would be tragic for you guys to see. We have giant bins full of flower mass that just gets dumped and destroyed. Um, breaks my heart every time we do it, but it's also kind of funny. Um, and so since we can't smoke the flower, you know, we might get some data that says, oh, well, you know, there's 30% less starch in flowers that are flushed for three or four weeks. And mm-hmm. this is just me speaking out loud, we don't actually have data for that. But, you know, if that's true, well, yeah. that doesn't really mean anything unless somebody can smoke it as well, because we do need that side of the evaluation. So that would be something interesting to do in the future. But, you know, the the human side of this and being able to smoke these flowers, that's a very, very restricted part of uh, any type of, uh, I guess, research field. Um, and very difficult to evaluate. Yeah. You know, UC Davis has been doing uh, sensory perception with wine. Wine's a big mm-hmm. industry out there in California. Yeah. You know, they've been doing these studies since the 90s, and they still have a hard time of, you know, eliminating bias and getting objective answers from some of these perceptions. And so if you start having people smoke flowers, it's a lot easier said than done. Um, it's very, very difficult for sure. Yes. But doesn't mean that people shouldn't try for sure. I, you know, I would love to be involved with some of those studies for sure.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. You know, it's um, often the case that um, self-reported data, observational data and survey data, that it's, um, you know, in terms of predictive value, it is of lower quality in a sense. Um, and there are always issues to tangle with. It's harder to validate the data and compare it sometimes. But it's also sometimes the only way to get some insight into um into these things. I mean, because now we're talking about like subjective experiences in terms of, you know, what is it like to experience smoking cannabis and, um, and how do you communicate that, quantify that? Um, and yeah, I mean, at some point you have to let people try things and ask if that's the type of information you want. Um, and so, yeah, it is challenging, but still worth, um, pursuing um for sure and hopefully yeah um hopefully down the road it might be possible to get some irb approval for uh um you know hemp consumption and that sort of thing um you know i guess we'll see yeah. you know right now like i said at the beginning of the episode i'm excited just to see that universities are comfortable allowing students to touch the plant you know for agricultural research and stuff and that is kind of a next step that we're waiting on is when will the institutional review boards for those that don't know what irb is um when will they feel comfortable um on the ethics side of allowing um human subjects to consume cannabis A very different ordeal altogether
0: yeah yeah absolutely you know two points you just mentioned too one Um, you know, it's been great having some of the undergrads get involved with hemp research and that maybe is an overlooked part of the academic or the university research side of this is that, you know, these companies are pitching in money and we're answering research questions directly, but we're also kind of helping train some of these students and get them involved, get them experience. And these are now students that are willing to, you know, move on to some of these other companies. So there's a pipeline there that's, you know, very, very beneficial for everybody involved. Um, And two, you know, I think, you know, hemp gets kind of looked at, looked down upon a little bit because it's not the, the, you know, the recreational product, uh, super high value one. But like you just said you know there it might be much more difficult to get um, approval to do taste testing or these smoking tests with a recreational product but if you grow these genetics and you do let's say a flushing study with hemp um, you know there might be not as much interference for uh, students smoking hemp flour versus can or you know marijuana flour the hemp flour, by definition, right. shouldn't be psychoactive. It shouldn't be getting you intoxicated. So, you know, you can do a flushing study. It says it's affecting the, the starch and sugars this way. You know, let's have the students or anyone else that wants to try it. That opens up things quite a bit. And then you can take that data and see if it applies to the recreational varieties.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it at least gives us something to start from. And, you know, my hope, too, is that a lot of the hemp research that's going on, that whenever is possible, that a lot of it will be replicated you know, on the, um, high THC side. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, um, kind of frontier work still to be done to kind of figure out how, how do we, um, study this plant within the legal constraints we have and how can we take what we learn from those challenges to make it easier to, to do more research in the future, which brings me to my last question. I see we're getting close on the hour here. Um, my last question i wanted to ask you is looking into the future of cannabis research both your own research and broadly um where is your interest what's kind of um got you most excited right now and what are you um looking looking forward to either studying or seeing be studied um, in the near future with cannabis
0: yeah yeah you know i get that question all the time and a lot of times it's just kind of like i don't know um i I think the most (laughs) obvious two paths yeah yeah exactly yeah Uh, i'm not too much about predicting the future except when it comes to maybe experiments you know you're kind of always trying to predict the future with science but as far as my own personal life it's a little bit harder um you know i think there's kind of two clear paths coming out of grad school here one would be uh, like a head of R and D for a multi-state operation. Uh, I would really enjoy something like that. One where a company, you know, has me uh, basically evaluate their processes and you know start from the ground up of let's improve the efficiency of every step of the way. Um, let's train people. Let's, let's yeah. reevaluate our fertilizer program and you know cultivar evaluation, all that stuff. Um, then the other option would just be kind of more of a freelance consulting of just traveling around and you know working with all these different growers whether they're an MSO or a small, you know, uh, maybe like a craft grower or something like that. Um, I kind of like the idea of being able to do both. Um, And I should, you know, coming out of this program, I should have the leeway to do so um but yeah we'll see you know i think for sure um i will always be a part of the crc i am very dedicated to be part of this group i love that i'm in on the ground of this and that jim and allison have taken this on of making this a possibility um and i love that being part of this whole group in general um And the direction and the future of the CRC will be, you know, I think long term will be a group of researchers and companies always interested in pursuing research and data. um, And then also trying to, um, you know, get the next generation coming up. Um, And I guess as far as what companies are where I go outside of that, I guess we'll see. Time will tell.
1: That's right. Yeah. Time will tell. Well, you've done great work so far, especially in a, you know, what's really a relatively short amount of time. I mean, in the past few years, um, your work has touched on some of the most interesting and pressing, um, issues around cultivation. So, um, first of all, congratulations for the work that you've already done and, and obviously not just you, but the group of people around you that have all been working as a community to, you know, to make all of this happen, um. You know, bravo for what you've done, and I very much look forward to seeing what comes from the future, both from yourself, whether you choose to continue working with cannabis or not. I'm very interested to see um, kind of where your journey leads, and I'm, I'm very interested to see the the future of the CRC, and um, I hope to see more, you know, this is all research that people really are, that I would say common people, lay people are interested in and want to see more of. And um, that gets me excited, you know, both as a scientist and a science educator to see people excited about science and, and to be excited about research. Um, so um, the idea of being able to tap into the community, engage in any sort of like citizen science and industry science and, and just bring bridging these gaps between, um, you know, all of these different stakeholders and and, and the consumer um, I think is, is just so important. So I look forward to seeing what comes next. Um, I appreciate your work. Keep me updated as things um, progress. And obviously if there's ever um, any other studies or anything that you or anyone um, at Clemson or the, or associate with the CRC, if you'll ever have any other things you wanna um, share or chat about, I'm always happy to highlight them here on the show, but I really appreciate you being willing to spend the time today and as we close out, um, I don't know if you have anything you want to share in terms of how people can contact you, how they can find the CRC, but I'll, um, leave the last bit of time we have to let you close out.
0: Well, I just want to say thanks again for having me. This is, uh, this has been great and, uh, would definitely love to come back and do some more chats when, uh, I mean, Jason, we could talk about research all day and, you know, we didn't even get into the high control stuff oh, yes. and some of the more details of the photo period. Uh, so would love to come back for sure. Uh, always happy to talk about the research. Um, as far as reaching out to me, um, you know, uh, I have my email on LinkedIn. Uh, you can, yeah, I guess you can just reach me out on LinkedIn. Uh, always happy to chat on there. And, you know, people can also just email me uh, with questions. Always happy to talk about it. Um, but, yeah, this has been great.
1: Awesome. All right, Michael. Well, thanks so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And um, we'll definitely be in touch. We do, like you said, there's there's still even aspects from the studies we've mentioned that we we still are yet to get into. So I'm sure we'll, we'll make this happen again real soon. Um, so with that everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. If you made it to the end of the episode, I hope you learned something. I hope you enjoyed it. And, um, I hope that this has helped inspire more questions because that's really what it's all about is figuring out better questions to ask, um, so that we all learn more and, uh, come up with even better questions to ask because that's, that's just the, um, recurring cycle of things. So, If you need to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Twitter, and LinkedIn, all the places Just search for Curious About Cannabis. You can also find us on cacpodcast.com. And um, you can also find us if you are interested in diving into courses and getting more serious about cannabis education, you can go to learn.cacpodcast.com where i've um, set up a learning platform there and um, i think that's everything i've got to share today so with that everybody stay curious and take it easy Bye bye everybody if you're curious about cannabis like me then get connected to the Curious About Cannabis ecosystem, and let's learn together. Visit cacpodcast.com connect to join our learning community on our Discord server, and you can participate in regular giveaways, dive into the latest cannabis research, connect with certified Curious About Cannabis educators, hang out in our break room with other curious minds, and more. Best of all, it's totally free. Just visit cacpodcast.com connect to learn more or click Connect on the Curious About Cannabis app, which is available on Android and coming soon to iOS.